Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich, also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're On Trial. Judge Fudge presiding. Court is now in session. This is on trial. And tonight I am your prosecuting attorney, Mr. Mark Radledge, your mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. And joining me tonight is the imitable Sean Coma, you're not. Hello, Mr. Coma. I'm Sean Comer for the defense. You're not, and neither Michael Myers nor a homicidal cyborg has got nothing on me when it comes to my ability to somehow manage to break an otter box. <laughs> okay, more on that I in didn't just a moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I have questions. But I tell the people what we're doing tonight here. <laughs> Taking the stand tonight is... The uh, third part of the Halloween series, not featuring Michael Myers. This is Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. All right, how did you break an otter box? <laughs> well, I'm first off going to presume that you know what an otter box is. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a cell phone case. Yeah. Uh, Presumably yeah, an indestructible one. Yeah, it is basically your quintessential, indestructible, life-proof uh, cell phone case. Or at the very least, it's the most affordable one you can get. Uh, there are others that are made of shit like super high-grade Kevlar and the, the kind of things that they, they fill in tactical vests with that you can pay like several hundred bucks a pop with. And everybody will go, why in God's name do you think you would need something like that? But, yeah, I, I like a lot of people just happen to have an otter box. Uh, so the other night, uh, I, I go out to dinner at my dad's with my sister. Um, and I've got it clipped to my belt. I'm going and climbing into, and climbing into her passenger seat. And my phone just falls right the fuck off, and the clip is still attached to my belt. Like the, like the little thing that you're supposed to be able to lock it into place and it becomes a kickstand, which is, oddly enough, how I usually do this, how I usually do this show so that I can have two hands free to type since I'm usually working while I'm, while I'm chatting. And I'm looking at this going, if it's indestructible, I can somehow find a way to break it. Not by <laughs> sheer brute force, but uh, but just by the will of my own ineptitude. I will find a way to fuck up something that should be unfuckwithable. <laughs> so... That is brilliant. You, but man, you you and I you and I have had a couple rough weeks. It's It's nice that we have a chance to since technical difficulties forbade it last week, uh, be able to sit down and just debate a couple marginally good movies. And debate we will. All right. Um, yes, we will. As, as, as always, we, we like to start off with some notes, and then we'll, uh, I will get into my prosecuting arguments. Sean will defend. I will have the last word, and then Sean will have the last word, <laughs> and we'll just keep, and we'll, we'll just keep fighting over that last word. No, um, I will prosecute. He will defend. I will give a final prosecution, sort of, and uh, you know, and then we'll say our goodbyes here. That's the game plan for Halloween three season of the witch. So take it away, Sean. What notes do you have for us tonight? 
All right. Well, let's break this down like a fraction. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go with the whole greater theme thing here, uh, because this is a movie that actually has a somewhat interesting individual story. First off, if I were the type who got all self-conscious about that trope of you want to feel old, thing A is blank years old, prime old. Yeah, I would be feeling pretty damn depressed right now. Fortunately for me, I don't really cotton to that shit. Uh, Because this was actually released the year that I was born. Uh, As a matter of fact, you look at the exact date. Uh, yes, in fact, October 22nd, 1982. My birthday is December 2nd, 1982. So it's less than two months. It's less than uh, two months older than me. It's the third installment in the Halloween series following the first two movies, the first one being an excellent modern horror classic by John Carpenter, the movie that, depending on who you ask, either invented or uh, defined the modern slasher genre. Um, And the surprisingly good sequel that never, in my opinion, quite gets its due. Um, For this go-round, the creators of the original two movies, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, did not come back to write or direct, but they did come on as producers. Uh, it's written and directed, in fact, by a fellow named Tommy Lee Wallace, who is not really known for a whole lot else that you would have recognized. The movie is very, very low on on star power. We don't have a uh, an esteemed veteran actor like Donald Pleasance carrying it, or... Uh, someone who would eventually become a much bigger deal down the road, like Jamie Lee Curtis. The closest we've got is a veteran character actor, Dan O'Herlihy, as Connell Cochran. Uh, Dan, many of you, if you've ever seen this, might recognize as the head honcho of Omni Consumer Products in the first RoboCop movie. And we also have the first and only movie in the series that departs entirely from the mythos of Michael Myers. In fact, when Carpenter and Hill were approached about a sequel, that was their idea, was they didn't want to do another direct sequel to Halloween. Uh, Rather, they wanted to take the franchise off and sort of rework it into their cinematic take on an anthology along the lines of, say, uh, The Twilight Zone would be a fair comparison, wherein every year the movie would release around Halloween, its plot and themes would center on the Halloween season, but that would be it. Uh, No Michael Myers, no references to Michael Myers, uh, nothing taking place taking place in Haddonfield, nothing to do with the first two movies. And this one in particular, as Mark's going to explain in just a minute, is an amalgamation of sort of themes of malevolent arcane witchcraft coinciding with the dangerous new frontiers of then uh, then ble- uh, bleeding edge modern technology. So it's it's kind of science fiction meets classic Celtic fairy tales. And man, oh man, oh man, oh Shabbos. When this thing came out, it got absolutely blistered by critics. Uh, There were many of them who, like a lot of fans at the time, were mystified and felt duped by the fact that this was a movie bearing the Halloween name that had had fuck, fuck, fuckity, blue fuck all to do with Michael Myers. And beyond that, they just weren't impressed with the movie as a whole. And it it honestly, if you look at it proportionately for its budget, it didn't do too badly at the box office. Uh, it only cost 2.5 million to make, and grossed 14.4 million. 
So it, it made its budget back several times over. It's just that it wasn't the enormous mainstream blockbuster success that Universal Pictures expected it to be. And so this whole idea of we're going to branch it out and the movies are all going to be called Halloween, but they're going to have nothing to do with the first two slasher movies, that went right out the window. Uh, in fact, it was, it was suggested by one particular reviewer that without that name attached to it, it would be, and I'm quoting here, a fairly nondescript 80s horror flick, no worse and no better than many others. But the whole reason we're talking about it here tonight is because within about the past, uh, I would say you know, 15 years or so, it's really managed to transcend its original legacy. It's gone from being just an overtly bad, 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 bad horror movie that's supposedly unfit for human eyes to a, a cheesy bad horror movie that is just kind of fun to get together with your buddies and riff on after a few beers to still others finally coming around and realizing, you know, once you get past the notion that it's a Halloween sequel that has nothing to do with the previous two Halloween sequels. And if you can manage to forestall the notion that <laughs> because this got shit canned, we then got the succession of every horrible fucking Halloween movie afterward um, because this didn't work out. It actually stands alone as a pretty good, creepy movie. It doesn't stand out as anything necessarily revolutionary. You know, it doesn't reinvent the wheel like the first movie did. It, but it has its memorable moments, and it has it has its parts that. Really, seriously, even if you watch them nowadays, they're unleaded nightmare fuel. Especially if you watch it with somebody who doesn't necessarily have the stomach for horror movies. It's, if anything, its greater legacy, as I'm going to elaborate on, is the idea that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, time will actually do what was once considered an objectively bad movie, some huge favors with the benefit of a little bit of perspective, and make it not just a, a so-bad-it's-good sort of unintentional comedy, but something you can just kind of enjoy on its own merits. In fact, I would dare say that if it were to come out today, it would probably be uh, – well, an updated version of it anyway – kind of a surprise box office sleeper. Possibly, what with the revival of sort of less is more horror. But anyway, uh, we got time to do this, but first and foremost, we have got. Oh man, do we have an interesting plot to unpack? <laughs> <laughs> All right, as, as, um, as, you, as you as you put it, one that forced you to, uh, to. I believe you said you had to actually go online to answer the question, "What am I even watching?" Yeah. So I'm not going to – boy, did I ever. Um, I'm not going to as – as I've done with the last couple of shows, I'm not going to go through every plot detail, uh, just an overall summary of what happens here. Uh, we have a guy – the mystery of a man who is running out of the darkness, who is subsequently murdered, the, uh, and then the, the murderer immolates himself in the car <laughs> – Strangely enough, um, the, the doctor that was caring for him and will come to learn uh, the dead man's daughter uh, decide that there's a mystery afoot here. They don't know what happened to the dad, the, the, this man, Mr. Grimbridge, I believe his name is. They don't know why he was murdered. Um, they just know he was carrying a mask at the time, which leads them to 
the production facility where these masks are made. There's somewhere in California. I don't remember the name of the town. Um, but it's uh, sort of a uh, – it's one of these small towns where it's sort of propped up by this one particular manufacturer. Uh, and they take root in the town for a while. Their strange things are afoot. Uh, the mystery begins to unfold a little bit. Ultimately, what they find out is that the owner of the factory, Connell Cochran, is played by Dan Her- uh, Hurley, as Sean said. He uh, he reveals his plot, which is that he wants to sell as many of these masks to kids as possible, and then on Halloween night they'll play a tone. The tone will cause the masks to react because they are. Uh, there's a little, there's a little bit of Stone Edge uh, attached to the mask, unbeknownst to the buyer. The tone will react with the little bit of Stone Edge. The Stone, uh, then the mask will essentially kill all the children uh, that are wearing them, as it does to one poor kid uh, that has come to visit the uh, the factory. The then the race is on to try to stop it. Uh, our hero in this thing, Mr. Uh, Dr. Daniel's Chalice, Tom Atkins, he, uh, he attempts to foil the plot. He's, uh, he escapes. He calls the TV station and says, hey, turn these commercials off. He is successful in two, but the third one, uh, he manages to not get turned off. And we are left with... Uh, I don't... It doesn't go any further than, you know, it starts to happen and then the screen goes black and he, you know, fails and ultimately fails in his mission. Uh, just to, make, to drive the point home here, the reason why Mr. Grimbridge was killed was because he had figured out what was happening and he was trying to tell people and he came across like a crazy person and he was silenced. So that's essentially the movie. All right. Let us begin the prosecution of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I want to be clear about something that we talk about often on Damn You Hollywood, and that is this. When reviewing a film, and in this case, you know, prosecuting the elements of the film, it, it, I think it's best to try to keep your personal point of view out of it as much as you can and try to look objectively at the film itself. And I bring that up because one of the arguments as Sean said is, well, they used, they used the marketing and the branding of Halloween and it had nothing to do with the previous two Halloween movies. Therefore, and people then make the jump to therefore it's a bad movie. This movie is not bad because it has nothing to do with Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis and all of that. This movie is bad on its own without having anything to do with any of that. And, I, and, and before I get into the critical elements, let me just prosecute the notion of what they were trying to do with this movie. Because I, I, I do think that it deserves some criticism. I'm not against the idea that they were trying to do something with the branding and marketing and, you know, and let's say, Hey, let's try some new stories and new characters and make this an anthology series. I think that's a good idea. And you know, who's doing it really, really well, this sort of thing, Disney, you know what they're doing it with star Wars. Okay. Look at what star Wars is doing, right? You have the linear, uh, chapter movies, right? Force Awakens, Last Jedi, whatever the third one's going to be. Uh, that follows in the succession of the movies we already know. Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. But then they do these anthology stories that uh, exist in the same universe but are on their own timeline. They've got their own thing going on. They're not connected necessarily to the uh, chapter universe that we know and love. They're telling their own stories separate from that, just in the same universe. And they say as such. 
Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Branding and marketing matter. Solo, a Star Wars story. Branding and marketing matter. If you're going to take the concept of Halloween and say, hey, we're going to do a Halloween story, but it is out, it is nothing to do with the continuity of the first two movies, then what this should have been called, because branding and marketing matter, is Season of the Witch, a Halloween story. Because here's the thing. While I would not criticize the elements of this film solely based on the fact that it is not within continuity. I can see where people were agitated and thought they got a bait and switch job by calling it Halloween three. Three denotes the third part of a continuous story. Unless you've established that your, uh, your series of movies are separate stories themselves and follow no continuity, it is assumed by any average moviegoer that two, three, four, five, six, seven will follow in some sort of continuity in the universe that the first movie exists in. I don't think they did themselves any favors by marketing and branding the movie this way. Again, a simpler way of doing it in a way that I think would have been more successful and would have eliminated the argument of this movie sucks because no Michael Myers would have been calling it Season of the Witch, a Halloween story. So let's talk about Season of the Witch for a moment, shall we? This is not a great movie based on the elements I'm going to talk about. Number one, this would have made for a better 30-minute, maybe an hour with commercials, uh, like Twilight Zone, Creep Show. I want to say even the Nightmare on Elm Street series was also sort of vignettes and uh, short stories and wasn't necessarily connected to uh, the Freddy Krueger continuity such as it was. Um, Sean might be more familiar with the series than that, but there are, there have been plenty of horror and horror esque and thriller, uh, short story vignette type series. Another one that comes to mind, uh, this is dating myself now, but the hitchhiker that used to be on HBO where the only thing linking them together was this hitchhiker character, but it was basically it's their own little vignettes. Another, uh, another more modern, take on this idea, Black Mirror. Black Mirror follows no continuity whatsoever. It's just short stories. The, I, the, I'm not against the concept of this movie. I actually like this idea a lot. There's a little bit of science fiction in there, a lot of horror, you know, the idea of, of uh, this man who wants to return Halloween to its witchy elements, to its you know, child murdering elements, I think is a good one. I, I thought this was a fun idea. There's just, you can look at it two ways. There's either not enough idea to carry out a full 90 minute feature, or there is, this one just didn't execute that idea very well. To say there are pacing problems with this movie, wow, does that undersell it a lot. There are whole chunks of this movie where hardly anything is happening uh, before you know before you get to a critical part of the movie. I hate to throw the word boring out there because again, what bores you may thrill me, and it's all subjective. But there's just so much nothing in this movie, and then when you finally get to something interesting. It, it's bland. Which brings me to my next point. As I've said before, I, I don't talk much horror. I don't like the horror genre. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't like people being mutilated and massacred and, you know, I'll, well, blown up, sure. I love that. But as we all know, shot with guns, absolutely. Stabbed with a knife, not a fan. Um... Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of the horror genre. 
But I will tell you that I think if you're going to create a horror movie, it should fucking scare people. And I scare pretty easily. I still don't like the Lord of the Rings cartoons by by uh, Rankin and Beth because they're scary and the and the cartoons are ugly looking. Okay, uh, when we did the Long Road to Ruin for um, oh gosh, what the hell were the names of those uh, found footage movies? Paranormal <sighs> Activity. Thank you. When we did the Paranormal Activity movies, I had to fast through and forward to a lot of the second one because it was scary and it was creepy. You know? So, listen, I'm a huge pussy when it comes to horror movies. I scare really easily. And this one, and, and, and if it doesn't scare me, it has failed on its face. That is objective criticism, ladies and gentlemen. I set the bar for scary, and it's low. Okay, and this one didn't even reach it. It has one. It has one. One truly horrifying sequence. Uh, sequence, and that's when they kill the kid with the pumpkin mask and there's snakes and everything, and that is truly gruesome to look at. But in a 90-minute feature that is supposed to be a horror movie, it shouldn't take. It shouldn't just be one scene, because there are several kills in this movie, and they all suck. The <laughs> I don't. The androids, okay? Like, I, the, the, at some point, you know, he starts taking out the androids, and I guess the yellow jelly, you know, the, this, this, this banana jelly that, that oozes out of him is supposed to be scary? I don't know, but it's not. And even our, our villain here, now I can, I, and I have to talk about performances after this, but let's just, let's just talk about characterization. You have... Dan O'Hurley as Colonel Cochran, and sure, he he shouldn't start out necessarily mustache twirly and scary and gruesome, but as the plot rolls on and, and the cat's out of the bag, that's the uh, that's when he needs to turn. That's when he needs to, you know, I, I don't think he needs to be a ghoul necessarily. He can still be a regular human being, but he's his characterization and his performance should elicit some degree of terror from the audience and it doesn't he's just he just seems to be just a flummoxed businessman even when he's telling him about what his what his plot is he's like i'm gonna kill all the children boy that was his opportunity to really turn on the juice and freak the audience out and he's just like and he just gives this bland performance Let's talk about performances for a moment. And I'm going to stick with Colonel Cochran for just a moment. And, and then I got to talk about our, our lead here. But I was thinking about this as, as I was driving home tonight, going back to his reveal of the plot. He delivers these lines in sort of almost a whisper. And it's not scary and it's not intimidating. I was bored listening to it. Because there's no fire, there's no, there's no vim, there's just, just nothing to it. And what, they, and what that was an opportunity for, and what it should have been, was Christopher Lloyd from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when he does his reveal. Remember me, Eddie? That scared the shit out of me as a kid, and it scared the shit out of everyone who watched it. Okay? Christopher Lloyd... There comes a time where chewing the scene is appropriate. And when you're telling people that you ship Stonehenge from fucking Europe to California and you're chipping little bits of it away to attach to three masks, you know, so that you could kill a bevy of children across the United States, that's where you should be chewing scenery. That is a failure of performance. That is a failure of direction to not realize that is your opportunity to scare the living fuck out of anyone that's watching this thing. And instead, it was like he explained it like you would deliver you know, almost any idea in a board meeting. He's like, well, this is our plan, and these are our charts, and these are our dead children. We'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. So... Yeah, his performance leaves a lot to be desired, um, as does the direction of his performance. Yeah, you have to put some of this on the director. I mean, I'm sure he's a fine enough actor, and he was doing what he was told, and it just it was shit. 
Speaking of shit, let's talk about Tom Atkins, Mr. Dan, uh, Dr. Daniel Chalice. The urgency, the, uh, the sense of urgency, the tension in a movie oftentimes comes from your hero, your, your, protag- your uh, protagonist in dire straits and how they react. And for most of this movie, he's just kind of milling about, sort of unenthusiastically. And then when he finally learns what's happening, where's his sense of horror? Because it isn't visible in his performance. There's, there comes a point where, and, and, I, and I get that he might have been a little like, tired from all the things that happened to him, but he's literally like on screen, like half asleep. And just kind of like falling over. And you, you could probably sell me on what the idea was behind that in terms of the story. But again, film is a visual medium and it didn't look interesting. And I wasn't compelled by what was happening based on his reactions. That's a failure of storytelling. That's a failure of direction. That is a failure of performance. Okay? At least the guy doing Conal Cochran... You know, you know, he at least had a fun idea to kill children going on. You know, that that was a positive story element. This guy, our hero, had just as the tension is supposed to be building, as the sense of urgency is supposed to get the audience enraptured in what the story is. He's just kind of, oh, I'm so tired. I, whew, I need a nap. All right. If your lead looks like he's about to fall asleep in the middle of the picture, I don't know what your audience is supposed to do with that. <laughs> so there's that. The gal who plays, um, oh gosh, what's her name here? Uh, what is her name? Uh, the daughter, uh, Grimbridge's daughter who I can't find here in the, in the credits. Uh, in any case, yeah, she just kind of gives a, a, okay. Stacy Nelkin is her name. She plays Ellie. Um, Ellie is kind of meh. She's just there. And can I talk about the romance in this movie for just a moment? Again, even in a horror movie, performances should be believable. And, you know, a a ridiculous story like the one this one is telling should at least be consistent within its own universe. Could there have been a less believable romance than the two of them in this movie? Because within a scene or two of meeting each other, they're sleeping together. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. You know, I'm like, I guess I'll sleep on the couch. Is that what you want to do? Well, where do you want me to sleep? And I expected porno music to start playing after that. That's how bad that was. I've actually seen dialogue delivered better in other pornos. It was, it was, I always make fun of George Lucas because I don't think he understands how humans, uh, how humans work based on his uh, romance direction in Attack of the Clones. It was almost that bad, okay? George Lucas directing romance, bad levels of bad. So... Uh, long stretches of nothing, some bland performances, uh, missed opportunities. Again, it, it, this isn't. This doesn't even gravitate to so bad it's good because there's no camp here. No one's having any fun with this. It, it's trying to be scary and it's failing because there's nothing. The the kills themselves aren't frightening. Or gory looking, except for the one thing with the kid. It just overall, it, it it needed to be shorter. There needed to be more more uh, camp, more uh, more sense of urgency, and you know, even art direction. There were some missed opportunities here. Uh, and instead, it just—it was just kind of meh. So, yeah, I—I I, I said to Robert Winfrey on Tuesday, you know, I've watched Geostorm and uh, Season of the Witch, in, you know, in close proximity to one another, 
And I, I'll go ahead and argue that Gia Storm was a better made movie. At least those people seem like they were having fun with it. Your witness, sir. Thank you, Fudgy. You know, I really do feel bad for Season of the Witch because there was a time when I didn't necessarily appreciate it either. I really jumped on that bandwagon that lashed out against the mistaken branding. But as I've come to realize, the trouble with that is it doesn't necessarily grant what was otherwise a valiant effort a fair trial. And of all the movies, hand to almighty Zod, I am not kidding, the one that drove this home to me was Rob Zombie's first Halloween movie. Stop laughing. Because, as I found out when I actually forced myself to sit through that one, I was not in a good place at the time. Uh, About the first act and a half of it, is actually not really all that bad as just a standalone movie. If you can kind of find a way to reject reality and substitute your own, so to speak, uh, it's actually not a bad setup for a story. It's just not something that makes a great setup for a retelling of the lore of Michael Myers. That's actually when everything starts to really go downhill, is right around the time they try to really cement this as a Halloween remake. Because everything up to that is really pretty promising. I found myself enjoying it. And that's the same thing that I found all the way through Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, is... I I watched it a number of years ago. It was when I first watched it, and I realized, okay, I'm going to try something. I'm going to sit down, and I am going to throw out the case that it's a disappointment as a Halloween movie because that's obviously about the most no-shit Sherlock case that anybody could possibly make right now is, no kidding, it's a lousy Halloween movie. It has nothing to do with the Halloween franchise. So I watched it and just judged it on its own merits for a change. And I realized it's not a masterpiece by by any standards, let alone those of a legend like John Carpenter. But it's really not bad. And the reason I say that's unfortunate is because sometimes a franchise has to start out on an extremely flawed note in order to go forward and get better. It has to go through a progression of that build, measure, learn loop in which you don't necessarily expect to get it perfect on the first try, but you put out the best effort that you can you examine what you got and the feedback. You compare it to what your standards were for what you were trying to accomplish. And then you say, okay, what can we do going forward to make this better on our next iteration? One of the best examples of this I can come up with is, believe it or not, the Assassin's Creed video game series. Um, those of you who have played the first game you know that it's good, it shows a lot of promise, it tries to do some bold things and manages to break a little bit of new ground, but man, does it have its problems. Uh, From the controls to its repetitive nature to some pacing issues with the plot itself, But then Ubisoft goes and takes a lot of the feedback to heart, took a very honest look at it, and Assassin's Creed 2, what came next was 
nothing short of a bona fide masterpiece. Uh, for years, it was the best game to come along in the series, and now look how far we've come since then. They've made mistakes. They've still had to learn, but it all had to start with that certain imperfect first entry, and that's what this could have been. This could have been a good idea, the birth of a brand-new October tradition, something on which Universal, Universal Pictures could have truly banked for years to come, I think, had they maybe given this another chance. Unfortunately, it didn't get that chance, and instead what they, what they decided to do, they went right back to the well, and we got a trilogy of progressively more horrendous movies that had to be retconned right out of existence in the style of the Star Wars prequels when Halloween H2O came along, which in turn was no prize itself because that gave us Halloween Resurrection, which depending on who you ask is either the worst or at least the runner-up worst movie in the entire series. So we could have had something special, and instead they decided to just strangle it in the crib because the first outing wasn't perfect. And, yeah, it, it does have its pacing issues. I will acknowledge that. Um, prior to starting the show, Mark said, and I agreed, that it would have worked better as something like a 30 or 45 minute episode of a TV series. And yeah, I am familiar with uh, Friday the 13th, the series, and Freddy's Nightmares, and other such shows. I, I grew up with those too. And I, I agree, it probably would. He, he, well, in fact, he compared it to Black Mirror. And there's a certain parallel that I think could have worked there where you could have, in fact, maybe you could, you could almost argue this might have been ahead of its time because you have a story that deals in, you know, kind of the science fiction evils of advancing technology and, but also with the looming colliding influence of more ancient forms of e forms of evil, uh, something that a Black Mirror obviously does not go the the magical and mystical route hardly at all. It sticks pretty much to technology technology run amok and abused. But it's not that it's not that far off of that path. So something like this, yeah, I would have thrilled to a regular yearly franchise uh, because I'm the type that for years I looked forward I looked forward to the next Saw, the next Paranormal Activity. Well, in fact, that's another one. Paranormal Activity, it followed the same very general continuity, but by and large for the most part, the actual families themselves uh, kind of stood largely alone in terms of in terms of the actual story throughout a lot of the franchise. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, there were crucial points where they had to intersect with the continuity of the previous movies because they were telling a continuous thread. But it wasn't a perpetual straight-up continuation of the immediate events of the previous movie. Uh, in fact, you almost could call sometimes, I think, Paranormal Activity just an anthology found, found footage series. It's a whole lot easier than trying to make, to make sense of its straight-up continuity. I can tell you that. But, I mean, but speaking of that kind of thread of talking about of talking about modern technology and contemporary evil. That's where I really have to kind of object to 
uh, kind of calling Dan O'Hurley on the carpet for his performance as Connell Cochran. There's a reason it was so downplayed. And as a matter of fact, no, I am glad that he didn't go the Christopher Lloyd and Roger Rabbit route because that wasn't the point with this character. The point was, unlike other villains in other horror movies that keep to the shadows and almost you almost don't end up acknowledging they exist, you know, here you have a quiet, stately man in a handsome suit who, if he's hiding at all, he's hiding in plain sight, speaks to that unsettling notion and a certain a certain undercurrent of maybe commentary uh, commentary on corporate morality that some people have speculated the movie kind of runs rife with. The idea that sometimes the most terrifying thing about true evil is that its face is right in front of you, and you never recognize it until it's too until it's too late. Josie, get away from get away from my pistachios, baby. I'm, I'm sorry. There's a large, affable American Akita that has decided to amble into the courtroom. <laughs> um, you, you'll never know she's here unless she starts the nightly. Sean, have you forgot what time it is? It's time for you to let me out. Whining. But but for now she's getting she's getting ear scratch scratches, so I think she's happy. I think. Um. <laughs> but that's the beauty of it, and that's why I enjoyed it so much. Is simply because, well, yeah, occasionally you want to see somebody who's animated and scenery-chewing in the style of, of, uh, Freddy, of Freddy Krueger or, or, you know, Judge Doom and Roger Rabbit. You know, uh, get ready, folks. Up your adult beverages and let's all raise a glass because I'm about to make a wrestling reference. Uh, growing up, yeah, I love to listen to the hollering, intense, sometimes borderline bugfuck nanners promos cut by your likes of uh, Vader and Sergeant Slaughter and Ric Flair and Randy Savage. But goddamn, the one that got to you the most, and if you don't agree with this, I have to assume you did not grow up with the same era of professional wrestling that I did, by no less than Jake the motherfucking snake Roberts. Because rarely did you ever hear the man have to raise his voice. He spoke to you in completely calm, collected, almost borderline sociopathic measured tones the entire time. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to try to throw Connell Cochran out there as some kind of quintessential legendary horror movie baddie. He's not. He's very downplayed. He's very understated. But I get what he's trying to do, and I appreciate it because it was the right thing for this character. And quite frankly, I kind of liked that he's a man who's able to... (laughs) All logistical concerns aside, manage to manage to bring over little pieces of Stonehenge, because all the while, nobody knew who he was or what he was doing. Um, which by which by the way, that um, that little spi- that little Spinal Tap reference I think needs to be a part of watching this movie for everybody, for everyone who has ever seen all of them. Because, I don't know, maybe it was because I was about three beers into the evening, but when I said it when he mentioned that part, I had, <laughs> I, I kind of had to stop for a minute because I started giggling so hard. And, you know, there's almost something kind of hallmarky also about the phrase, there's a little bit of Stonehenge in all of us. Um, 
I should not make greeting cards. Well, let's just all acknowledge that right now. But, I mean, is that plot a little bit out there? Yeah, sure. Yes, there are logistical concerns about it. Guess what? So there are in almost all great horror movies. I mean, look at how much you have to suspend your disbelief over the course of the first three Saw movies for so much of that to seem even remotely plausible. But at the same time, it's original, and I like it because he genuinely has no other reason for doing what he's doing except because I'm evil and fuck you, that's why. (laughs) This was before we went completely off the goddamn rails to try to explain any and every little thing about why Michael Myers did what he did. I mean, it was just simply the notion that, you know, again, much like Michael Myers himself, sometimes evil is just pure and inexplicable. Sometimes it doesn't have to make sense because real-life evil does not always necessarily make sense. If we're talking about a Halloween movie... Yeah, he is the type who would probably stuff the apples full of razor, the candy apples full of razor blades. Yeah, he would absolutely, he would absolutely do that. And there are people who do that. And you know what? They're not doing. They aren't doing that as a form of protest. They're not necessarily doing that because of some kind of lingering trauma that forever scarred and fucked them up, sometimes they're just doing it because they're just bad fucking people. And occasionally, that's all you really need when it comes to a horror movie. It's just a story about bad fucking people doing bad fucking things. And so, to close out my defense before I rest, This was a movie that had the right idea by one of the foremost directors I would think of in terms of minds that I would think would have been able to pull this off. He didn't get it right on the first try. John Carpenter did not always, you know, nail that belt-high fastball dead center and send it screaming over over the left field stands. You know, he he wasn't a perfect director. This is not a perfect movie. In many ways, it's a simplistic product of its time that's both before horror really refined everything that it could be and everything that it could say, but at the same time, it's also when it didn't feel the need to try too hard and could sometimes try to just tell a fairly simple story which was what Carpenter and Hill specialized in. So we look at it today and we look at it through the lens of the that have been the lenses that have been sort of recalibrated by all the horror movies that came after this one. Because let's keep in mind and and herein I'm going to I'm going to double check something here. So if you hear some Typing in the background, that's what it is. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, Uh, this preceded the very first A Nightmare on Elm Street by just a little over two years. Um, Let's try another one. As long as we're... When did Friday 13th come out? Okay, and it came two years after the original Friday, the original Friday the Thirteenth, and last but not least, just because I always forget this one. Okay, and it followed Carpenter's original Halloween by four years. 
So we were still living in a very simple era of horror movies. Uh, we we hadn't yet seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that hadn't yet come out and taken uh, special effects and sort of mind-bending plots to otherworldly new, otherworldly new places. Um, we hadn't we hadn't been given the Saw movies yet, which told a really gripping kind of morally compromised story. That that sort of the first movie anyway made you think a little bit. We uh, we hadn't yet experienced. I don't believe we'd experienced Hellraiser by that point. I mean, we had yet to really have our bar set higher by a lot of the movies that we revere today ahead of today ahead of this one. And yet, and yet, there are still moments where you see that potential. Like the first time you see a Halloween mask crumple as it turns a kid's head into a wriggling, writhing mass of snakes and bugs. And it strikes you that, number one, you realize that what you are picturing in your head is indeed, to to go ahead and borrow the cliché, probably far more terrifying than anything that you can be shown on screen but also that you're getting a glimpse of the potential of what could have been and something they could have looked at and gone, okay, that really worked. Why did that work? And what about that can we borrow to thread that into our next few movies? However, unlike today where a movie can bomb and sometimes it'll still manage to somehow get a chance at a sequel. You know, here this movie made its budget back almost seven times over, and but it was it was critic it was critically panned because critics like Roger Ebert didn't get the notion that it wasn't a movie that told that told some bigger story. And so it was for all intents and purposes strangled in the crib and well, let's just go right back to Michael Myers, and let's let's try to tell some deeper cockamamie fucking backstory over the course of three movies, and then when that tanked, it was okay. Well, we can get just get Jamie Lee Curtis on board and just continue to insist that those other movies never happened. You hear us? Never happened. Um. And then we'll hand the movie franchise over to Rob Zombie, and I kind of want to drink now. <laughs> Defense rest to go drink. Okay. Uh, my only final <laughs> word on this is a word about understated performances. Look, I'm not a child. I don't need someone, despite Robert Winfrey's insistence at times, I don't need to, someone to jingle keys in front of me to be interested in things. I, too, enjoy a nice understated performance. However, you, film is a visual medium, and it must be entertaining. And an understated performance can be entertaining, but, not, but just by virtue of it being understated doesn't make it entertaining. And I, I'm sorry, uh, the performances in this movie are just not very enrapturing. I'm not saying they're terrible. I can definitely sense there was acting going on. But you have to capture the imagination of the viewer. And I don't believe, by and large, these performances do. Understated or otherwise. So part of my reason for saying, oh, you know, going the Christopher Lloyd route would have been at least to give me something to chew on. But if you want to go understated, that's fine. But then you have to get a better director than this one had or better actors than were in this movie because they all failed on their face to deliver something that truly lit up the screen, understated or otherwise. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to end it there. You know, overall, 
just uh, kind of a final word, stepping away from the prosecution of this thing. Like I said, I, like, I, I really did like the idea. I thought it was a fun idea. I just didn't think it was executed particularly well. Um, I don't know if it really holds up. Uh, just the, the look of the movie, I don't, I don't know if it really holds up now. I mean, it looks dated. And, and granted, it, it's, it's from 1982. It is dated. But there are some movies mm-hmm. that came from the early 80s that I still think hold up. Um, that are still enjoyable, and, and the fact that they're, you know, uh, 30 years old doesn't necessarily bring them down. This is not one of those movies. This one looks every bit as old as as it is. Uh, and for me, that, that took away some of the enjoyment. So that's it for this week's edition of On Trial. We'll be back in the month of November. We've got... Uh, an on trial for Thor the Dark World in two weeks. That's the week that we are. It's all Thor all the time. We'll be doing Ragnarok, which is actually Avengers Disassembled Thor on source material. We'll be doing a review of the movie Ragnarok. Uh, on the Metal Hammer of Doom, we're going to pick up an old wizard album, which is called Thor. Get it? See? See the theme here? And then here on On Trial, Sean and I are going to debate the merits of Thor the Dark World. And uh, um, I am defending. <laughs> I will be defending the Dark World. Sean will be prosecuting, so that ought to be fun. Um, <laughs> I get I get the sneaking feeling I will be um, I will be interviewing Stuart Lang, <laughs> and I may have to <laughs> invite him on as a guest witness because I I know for a fact that he passionately despises the first two Thor movies. That's fair. Uh, And then, keeping with comic books, the week of uh, Justice League, Source Materials got the Dark Side War. Uh, We'll be doing the Justice League review on Damn You Hollywood. Uh, Independent of all that, on the Metal Hammer of Doom, we're we're doing Poison, look what the cat dragged in, as our turkey of the month, since since it's the week of Thanksgiving. Um, We're not going to do an on-trial on Thanksgiving, obviously, but but Black Friday... We'll feature the blackest of them all on trial, Batman v. Superman, or as we like to call it, Batman very Superman. So uh, look for those. (laughs) Thor the Dark World and on trial, Batman very Superman on uh, November 24th. Uh, Go back and listen to all of our great shows here on the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network. Uh, yesterday, we did Stray from the Path, Only Death is Real on the Metal Hammer of Doom. Robert Winfrey and I reviewed Geostorm, and we kicked up the start of the week with a little thing called Planet Hulk. Yes, this is Planet Hulk. Next week, we've got a pair of uh, Halloween shows. We've got Damn You Hollywood Jigsaw <sighs> on Halloween itself. And our Halloween show uh, on November 1st for the Metal Hammer of Doom will be Motorhead Undercover. So go ahead and check all that stuff out. It's a fun time for the whole family. Sean, what are your plugs, sir? Well, first and foremost, thank you to everybody for downloading Listening Live. However it is that you enjoy fine Rodlich and Broadcast Network products wherever good times are had. Um, Thank you, as always, to that inimitable Cleveland Browns loving storage auction raiding comic reading son of a bitch Jesse Starcher for that beautiful opening theme and voiceover uh truly truly it is literally music to my ears every two weeks when I get to hear it um and finally I'm gonna go ahead and just put out there what I've been working on uh after having a chat with uh my friend Greg DeMarco of 411 Mania and podcasting and yeswrestling.com fame. Um, I'm going to be making a comeback in the not-too-distant future to writing about uh, the Squared Circle. As a matter of fact, I have a column idea that I'm developing called 8-Match Tag. It's based on a concept that... Once upon a time, my best friend in the world, Scarlett, and I came up with wherein we talked about how much fun it would be if 
we were to ever either kind of co-curate either a podcast or blog in which we came up with together with um, eight-song playlists suiting various themes, uh, something that we could sort of match up with an account on 8tracks.com so that uh, our listeners slash readers could actually kind of join in. Well, this is kind of along the same lines. Um, I'm going to pick a theme, and I'm going to come up with my recommended personal favorite eight matches uh, called exclusively from stuff on from the entire tape library on WWE Network. Um, I'm trying to get a few editions of this in the can before we fully launch it sometime around the Royal Rumble because that's actually what my first two editions are going to be are going to be devoted to is um, I'm looking at my top eight uh, Royal Rumble show stealers and man, what was the other what was the other one? I was talking about it with Greg the other day. Um, and I think it was uh, my top eight favorite uh, Royal Rumble matches was what we were going to go for. And then I've got several more that are going to be themed to run through WrestleMania season and just keep right on going after that. So look for that sometime circa January, uh, maybe earlier if I come up with a real blockbuster idea. But that's what I'm devoting a lot of my time to is – watching lots and lots of individual matches on WWE Network. Um, but otherwise, uh, that's about it for right, n- for right now. Um, thank you again, everybody. Always love coming, coming on here to just talk about the good, bad, and ugly of our favorite movies with you. And as always, remember, be excellent to each other. Always check the Candied app apples before you hand them over to your kids after trick-or-treating and never dull your colors for someone else's canvas all right everybody have a happy and safe halloween be well be safe and behave